Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 540, the Darren Tullet interview. to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined always with Eddie. Eddie, how's it going? Yeah, things are going well. I guess maybe have to apologize slightly to listeners for the audio quality of our last episode. There was a recording mix-up, so my voice didn't sound, didn't have its usual full tone, sounded a little bit echoey and distant. And hopefully this time it's raining here, you won't have the pitter-patter of rain. <laughs> Adding to the uh, Eddie, I feel like you've been distant very a lot lately. It's true. I think I'm just distant <laughs> in general, just my personality. <laughs> well, I mean, you might be have some distance from America, Eddie, but I know you, for one, are very excited for Major League Baseball's opening day today. Have you been streaming as many games as possible? <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, I do over the course of a regular season. I probably watch 10 baseball games. That doesn't include being in a bar and they happen to be on in the background because that's kind of cheating. Because if I factor that in, I'll total quite a few by the end of the season. But just actually either being at home or being somewhere where I think, you know what, I'll put a baseball game on in the background. But intentionally on in the background. It happens rarely. Maybe I'll throw one on tonight. You never know. Well, I mean, I have to say, you know, the season's pretty much just started. Games are just starting. And um, New York is still New York. You know, the Mets, for as hopeful as they are every season and as more and more money they pour in, they did a very Mets-like thing and put (laughs) Justin Verlander on the IL opening day already. So good start for their new signing there. Whereas the the Yankees are... uh, Surviving off the long ball with Aaron Judge homering on his first at-bat. So some things never change in New York baseball. <laughs> no, and I, but it is kind of indicative, right, of... I'm going to be interesting to see... It will be interesting to see how the pitch clock impacts home run numbers. Who gets hurt by that more? Whether it forces pitchers to just throw more pitches that maybe they would have avoided otherwise, or whether the, the kind of faster sequence makes it more difficult for hitters to be set. Like that will be the one thing that's interesting to track over the opening weeks and months of the season. Yeah. And uh, that's judge's first home run as Yankees captain, a long list of historic Yankee captains. I don't even know what a captain really does in baseball. He captains the team, Eddie. It feels like he leads the ship. What do you mean? you, (laughs) You know, my theory that I could, I think you could take pretty much anyone and they could instantly be a manager oh, you think, of a baseball. You, think you can captain the team? Well, captain would be harder because you'd at least have to justify your presence on the roster. <laughs> I, I could manage any baseball. I, I, I think it would be indistinguishable between me and any major league baseball manager. Captaining. <laughs> I love this. I mean, but it's just true. I, I mean, you know my theory. It was two years ago where I had advocated for Sam going and becoming a manager of a major league baseball team, and he didn't even know the basic rules of baseball. So that might have been a slight issue. But I at least know I don't get what you do. The lineups 
kind of vary slightly from day to day and you just need to manage your pitching rotations and decide when a when you bring in a relief pitcher it's not exactly like einstein level tactical intricacies is it no but i mean i think you could argue a decent amount of different sports the managers or coaches that they have don't really do much oh i mean baseball is by far and away the bottom of the totem pole like I mean, genuinely, I I mean this. I know I have a lot of I could do that easily claims. I really mean I think most people could be baseball managers. The only thing that would be your hindrance is your players not accepting you. So like the lack of credibility is the only thing that could be a real issue. But if you could somehow bypass in that, like if you could have a, we'll probably discuss this later on, like the Ted Lasso they couldn't make Ted Lasso about baseball because he, the guy would just instantly <laughs> be perfectly knowledgeable about the sport. He has the Don Mattingly mustache. Yeah, I mean, how, how serious can a manager be if they can get kicked out of a game and then just show up with funny glasses and a fake mustache and everyone thinks it's still fine? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> that shows you the level of, uh, of seriousness to being a baseball manager. <laughs> Already just the res- one of your responsibilities being like sticking up for your players and intentionally getting thrown out from time to time seems kind of stupid to me. The wearing of the uniform during a game is insane. How I don't know if you'd move. excel at that part, though, Eddie. The Not the uniform getting- part. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the, the getting thrown out part. I feel like uh, oh, you'd be too polite in your... In your- uh, I, wouldn't be comfortable. I wouldn't be comfortable with uh, no. getting an inch away from an umpire's face and screaming at my guy. I couldn't, I, I agree with yeah. you. I couldn't do that. No. I mean, maybe you could picture he's French and he's pummeling you. That's, that's, <laughs> that's happened a lot of times. So maybe that. I, I could do like the, like that, that one, people. the one guy who lost his mind and did the like army crawl towards second base and then <laughs> yeah, toss the, like to, toss the chalk bag and stuff. I could probably maybe get myself to do that just to amuse people. But the, the wires anger, break. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I wonder if that guy even remembers that. I wonder if that's just like a 10-minute blank in his memory. Just just, full red mist. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, it's possible. But maybe before we do get on to a little quick Ted Lasso recap, obviously it's worth mentioning we have an interview coming up sort of 20, 30 minutes into this episode uh, with broadcaster and journalist Darren Tullett, a, a really interesting look at his career carving out this really unique position as a a kind of British broadcaster on French television, uh, which is somewhat unusual. The Austin Powers of French television, you could say. Yes. And also just later on talking about some of his favorite sports to cover and some of the kind of standout sports that he's been a part of, and also a little bit of a discussion about PSG and, and Liga as a whole. So a really great interview worth sticking around for. Obviously, if you want to skip ahead to the interview, we'll never say you can't, but we prefer you do hang around for the little oh, preamble. Don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if you are a new listener, make sure to subscribe and also follow the Big Chill podcast on Instagram or Twitter. And there we go. There's our little sales pitch. All right. To the interview. but a slow sports week it has to be said obviously the international break coming towards an end uh 
one very notable notable result. I guess we should just mention oh, was, was. I was going to ask Scotland, you. Scotland's <laughs> big win against Spain. Uh, aside from that, it was a few days of international football where most of the results kind of went to form and expectation. But that was probably the big yeah. the big surprise of the week, and a result that puts Sp- Scotland on course to qualify for the next Euros. Certainly, a very strong position having having now won their opening two matches yeah crazy i mean i think that they had broken some streak that spain had had it was kind of a like it, fake stat it was, that yeah. that angers you and i was gonna i i tried to put it in my back pocket and bring it out but then i couldn't even remember the stat it was like home qualifying euro matches or something no, like no. that if they were they played they played in scotland but it was something i think it was 19 it was either 17 or 19 uh, european qualifiers unbeaten there you go okay just not so, the home part yeah uh, which is impressive but given the fact that there's a world cup qualification period that goes on in between and there's and actual there, euros <laughs> yes neither of which particularly well for Spain. No. So it's not like they've been flying high. This is not the Spain of 2010 that uh, Scotland just beat, but it's still a very notable result. And they also deserved, they outplayed Spain, which I think is the more taking aspect of it. You could have told me going into the match that they would have managed to kind of, you know, get a couple of goals against the run of play and, you know, sneak a result, but they genuinely were the better team on the night. Um, and, you know, deserve that win. So we'll see if they can carry that forward. It would be very Scottish of them now to somehow still not qualify, having got off to this incredibly good start. But they are in an incredibly strong position. Yeah, I was interested to see your opinion on it. I mean, I know you have been pretty dismissive of Scotland's football club over the years. Well, I'm not dismissive. I mean, uh, the other thing well, too, Scott. If, if, we, if you want me to go back to that episode, oh, in the Euros, <laughs> where you berated all the the Scottish supporters for how pathetic they they think this victory, even though it wasn't a victory, was the draw, the draw yeah. against England in the Euros, which yeah. is a victory to them and their greatest achievement ever. I think were some of the. No, I don't think greatest achie- greatest achievement greatest achievement for a while, perhaps not greatest achievement ever, but. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm sometimes a little bit dismissive of the Scotland national team. I'm also slightly dismissive at times of Scott McTominay, who scored both of the goals against Spain, also scored two goals in their win against Malta uh, on Saturday. So I think he'd scored three goals up until that point for Scotland. So sort of, you know, more than doubled his tally in the space of four days. But, you know, he's often one of those players who, I mean, I think a lot of people think Manchester United should move on for him. I don't think that performance changes people's mind, but it certainly shows his potential in the sense that he was man of the match and and really ran the show a bit for Scotland against Spain. And, you know, the midfield is going to be the hardest area of the pitch to boss against Spain. So it, it was an impressive performance. And overall, so far, what do you think of England's two matches? Six points, yeah, I mean, can't complain too much. No, as I said on the last episode, going to Italy and winning is, you know, you can't turn your nose up at that. It's a, it's a, it's a big win. And it's, you know, the accusations that have been leveled at this England team over the past couple of years, in spite of their good tournament performances, 
have been that they come unstuck against the very best opposition. I don't think Italy are, you know, among the the very elite nations in the world, even though they are reigning European champions, but they're still a good team and going to Italy and winning is, is no mean feat. So, you know, that's, you could, you kind of have to add that result as, as kind of sign of where England are as a, as a team. And they, handled their business nicely against Ukraine, qualification basically is done. It would take something remarkable for them to not qualify at this point. So that's all you could have asked for two matches in. And I guess moving to the NFL, not much updates there. Pretty much everyone is waiting for the draft. But we discussed Lamar Jackson and his possible moves uh, requesting a trade. If you could understand, that's what he was trying to say in his tweet. But... um, uh, there was a tweet that followed a few days later by Asante Samuel. I don't know if you saw this. Um, so there's speculation that Lamar Jackson might be traded to the Patriots. And there's a lot of Patriot fans that are very willing to give up on Mac Jones to get Lamar Jackson. And Asante Samuel, who played for the Pats from 20, 2003 to 2007, so two Super Bowl wins. I mean, do you think you'd be happy? He said, Lamar Jackson, my brother, trust me. You don't want to play for Belichick. So uh, pretty strong <laughs> words coming from someone who got two rings uh, while playing for four years in New England. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the it's the tough thing with Belichick, right? There's those players who speak about how difficult it is, life, how difficult life is under him, but then love him forever. You'd put, you know, Gronk into that category Edelman into that category. I think fundamentally you even put Tom Brady into that category, although they had the slight falling out towards the end of his time in New England. And then you have the players who absolutely hated it during it and absolutely hated it afterwards. And I don't know. It feels like you have to be more appreciative of A, his brilliance and consistency and maybe what he did for your career. Like to, you know, it's, I don't want to be someone who justifies bosses being bad bosses because they deliver great results. You know, like it's not the devil wears Prado or something where you can just be an incredibly difficult human being. But as long as you're kind of a superstar, it's okay. But I mean, I don't think Belichick, he doesn't come across as a mean person. He just maybe isn't necessarily the most approachable and friendliest, but I don't know. I would happily play. I mean, I don't know if you're Lamar Jackson now, I don't know if it's my number one landing spot because I don't think the Patriots are primed to win a Super Bowl and they're in an incredibly tough division. That would be my only concern. Yeah. Well, I also don't know if you saw Robert Kraft had a statement. He said, you know, Meek Mill is my friend. He texted me saying Lamar Jackson wanted to come here, but that's Bill's decision. Why is that on a, earth do you say that? <laughs> uh, I mean, you know my thoughts on Robert Kraft. I've got issues with Robert Kraft because he's one of those guys who always wears sneakers with suits. And when you're a you know eight year old white guy, it's just getting happy endings at a massage in in shoes and yeah. Nikes. Maybe, I mean, in fairness, maybe that's why he wears them. Maybe you know, like although I guess it's probably easier wait, to clean. Wait, 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 wait. Why? Why? Why would well, that help? 
I was trying to think what's where is it easier to clean the the like uh, oils and bodily fluids off of, but it's probably easier to get it off of a leather shoe than it is a sneaker. No, he has those. He has like that protection spray he puts on his sneakers. So like when it rains, it just like splashes <laughs> just off. Splashes off. He's got a, a pool of oil and other things at his feet. <laughs> yeah, but nothing like an eighty-year-old billionaire trying to sound cool. Yes, yes. I'm sure. I'm sure Meek Mill is really his friend. And hang I'm sure out on Lamar. The rag. <laughs> Once Lamar Jackson heard that, he's he is. Where can I sign? Yeah, but. The, I guess the only only other NFL news, right, is it looks like a sale of the Washington Commanders might be imminent. Yeah, uh, for six billion dollars to a an investment group fronted, at least as a kind of from an image perspective, by Magic Johnson, who I don't know how this guy. I, I, I'm sure he's incredibly charismatic, and. Everyone, you know, why wouldn't you want Magic Johnson to kind of be in on your business deal for a small percentage just so you get to hang out with Magic Johnson? But when you listen to him talk, he doesn't blow me away from a, even from a basketball perspective. He says the most banal things possible. But I guess if you're a Washington Commanders fan, the chance to move on from the Dan Schneider experience is, is a good one. But every new ownership group kind of scares me. So I'm not sure people are delighted about this. I'd, I'd still be worried. I mean, you say Magic Johnson isn't charismatic, but he has quite a few awkward ass interviews out there where he, he says some pretty upfront stuff about the type of person he was back in the day. Oh, no. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's it seems like he had good success. During his no, no. Career. I, I said he is charismatic. It's I know. It's just I know. that. Yeah. <laughs> But now it's um, be interesting to see what what will interest me the most is if they change the name, if they buy them, like because the commander sucks as a team name. And is this an opportunity to completely rebrand the team under a new ownership group? That would be I, I mean, I hope they just go back to the Washington football team because that was way better than the commanders. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> They just probably spent millions of dollars getting the commander well, that's not stuff their, out there. That's not their money. You know, they don't care <laughs> about what was spent. But I mean, the reason why I don't think they would go back to the Washington football team is if you're going for the rebrand, that's not a, a real rebrand. It's going back to something that was under Dan Schneider. Whereas I could see them trying to think of something completely new to kind of almost physically turn the figurative new page on the, on the organization. Yeah, on that note, before we get to the interview, should we do a quick TV recap with just Ted Lasso to maybe briefly discuss as a little mini then transition into our European football discussion with Darren Tullett? Yeah, and I actually, before we get to Ted Lasso, the other television I wanted to mention was uh, we did have Tobias Doors on as a, as a guest uh, probably about a year ago now, right? And uh during that time, he was on the Food Network Tournament of Champions and made it all the way to the Final Four. And this year, he was the one seed coming out of the East. And unfortunately, he lost in the second round this year. March uh, Madness. A, one, a two point loss, I think. Uh, very close. Uh, pretty disappointing. It was disappointing because I, I think he did have the better dish and he kind of got knocked down on, on some things that were a little unfair. But he says he'll be back and I'm sure he'll be back. So hopefully, 
maybe we can get him on again and see uh, yeah. how he how he felt about you know an early exit as the number one seed. It's how you you know increase the myth. Now you have something to prove when you come back the set the third time. But yeah, and I have a quick television catch up to do. I have up until now not watched any episodes of season three of The Mandalorian. I have oh now boy. watched two episodes. Oh boy. Not great. I don't think we have to discuss it in any great detail. One thing that stood out to me as a proud member of the Big Head Brigade, perhaps also literally and figuratively, the fact that the Mandalorians, they had that little weird uh, baptism uh, kind of event for the new kids being inducted as Mandalorians. The fact that they give them a... I mean, uh, yeah, it's not a real spoiler, but the fact that they give them a helmet when they must be 12 or 13 years old, and they're supposed to never take that thing off, and that helmet's supposed to last them their entire lives. I would have. <laughs> no, I would they have been, upgrade them. Are you sure? Yeah, they do. They definitely do. Uh, where, where have you seen that? What it's been like discussed that they get, they'll give you like new helmets as you age. It's kind of like they're if you've seen the episodes where like they replace the armor with new armor when you have achievements, basically. So they do replace okay. the helmets. I, I, I I'm sure that they do. And I'm sure if we went to the canon, they probably maybe discuss this. In the TV show, they have never mentioned this fact. No, no, they don't. And I'm just saying I would I would have died when I was like 17. I would have just suffered <laughs> my own helmet. I would, have been, I would have been like a hermit crab that can't find a new shell. And that would have been the end of me. Oh, man. Yeah, uh, there are now five episodes of The Mandalorian. And I can tell you well, right now, it does not get, get any better. It doesn't surprise me. <laughs> It does not surprise me. Oh yeah. Anyway, on to Ted Lasso season season three, three episode, episode three. three. So spoilers alert! Spoiler alert! Oh, if you haven't watched it, skip ahead ten minutes. You know, and then you'll you'll get to the interview. That's probably the easiest way to do it. But uh, it wasn't the worst episode of the season so far. Obviously, the two big storylines of the episode you have the arrival of this new. Zlatan-esque superstar who had, who immediately becomes an absolute goal machine for AFC Richmond Unreal. and sees them shoot up the has table. A, has a goal of the year every match. <laughs> yeah, first kick of the game, first kick of his AFC Richmond career. He scores from the halfway line straight from kickoff. Has a scorpion kick, a bicycle kick a bicycle at Old Trafford. <laughs> with, I mean, just, just an incredible... It's, bicycle kick off a corner, too. Yeah. Yeah, very difficult to get the space necessary to do that. Uh, quite <laughs> impressive. Uh, but yeah, no. He had a header a, off a corner where he got 13 feet off the ground. <laughs> yes. Well, he's quite tall. Uh, so there's that storyline. And then the other big storyline being the fact that there is a gay member of the AFC Richmond team. Now. I know you have thoughts. I have as thoughts soon as it, you texted me and you said not sure about this episode of Ted Lasso or not sure that we talked about it. No, 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 no. Yeah, yes. Please don't sorry, make me sorry, sorry, sound like that. Sorry, sorry. No, no. I said I not said sure, not we, can sure if we talk about it. Yes. And I instantly, when that first scene happened, I went, uh-oh, I think Eddie's going to have thoughts about this. <laughs> and here are my thoughts. I think it's great that the show has chosen to have a gay member of the team. And I think that's a actually a really interesting storyline, given the fact that we, you know, there's been no openly gay Premier League players at any point. The fact that it's been a huge topic of discussion, that you know about how well 
could someone be accepted? Um, there's a history in English football um, of negative chance, obviously, uh, and homophobic chance. So I think that's an interesting storyline. The thing yeah, that well, I just want to say before, back, yeah, before you get to that, I, I want to say I didn't think I didn't know you'd have thoughts about it because like you're against no, it no, or no. anything like that. Yeah, okay, but don't, don't, it, no, 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 I'm no. trying to make sure people like I'm saying. I it, think it, people it, know. The more it, you, the well, more. you never know. I have new listeners who just think you're an asshole. <laughs> well, no, so far it's making you make me seem like an asshole. My own my own words are trying to express my own feelings. Yeah. But, so I wanted to say, I think that as a concept is great. The thing that bothers me is it feels like the writers of Ted Lasso have made a list of like every sensitive topic they need to include over the course of this TV show from mental health to homosexuality, to some racial issues, to controversial sponsorship, to controversial ownership. Like they're just running through the list and I just wish they had been more selective just because I think they could have made each, if they narrow, if they whittled down those storylines from basically the seven or eight that they will end up covering over the course of these three seasons to two or three, say one a season that you really focus on, I think they would have made those storylines more powerful. And instead, it just feels like, here we go again. We're going to have two or three episodes. Because I, to a certain degree, I almost forget about some of the topics they've covered because... You know, like the uh, ownership issue with the uh, the kind of African dictator and the the yeah. oil issue, like you kind of forget that that even happened because they had to move on to the next issue so quickly. That's the thing that bothers me about it. Yeah, no, I, I exactly the same thing. You know, I appreciate that they're trying to introduce these controversial topics, but to introduce it randomly in the opener of episode three of season three and that it'll probably be just be sprinkled in periodically and it will be such a small and i mean not to be mean but an insignificant part of the overall ted lasso story where you could expand the focus and make that you know a, a major theme throughout the episodes would do it much more justice. And I completely agree. I thought this was another, like almost exactly what you said, that they had a list of all these, you know, topics they wanted to make sure they covered. And it was like, all right, we're at episode three. Have we done this one yet? No, let's do that. Okay, check. You know, like what's the random character that we really haven't had, say, a line yet in three awesome. seasons? Okay, check. Like that it it seemed it seemed rushed and and not well thought out. Yeah, that's the other issue is it kind of feels the way of bringing each character to the forefront is through some, I don't want to say controversial in the sense that but being gay is controversial, but if you see what I mean, like the, the little kind of controversial storylines are the things that then put someone front and center. And that, yeah, just, it seems like they could have done a better job. Like, for, why are we spending any time on Kaylee building her company? instead have all of that time focused on a really interesting idea of how could an openly or at this moment, not openly gay, but someone who I assume over the course of the season will probably reveal this side of himself to some of his teammates. And, you know, you had things like the homophobic jokes by the AFC Richmond players. I thought that was really interesting because it did not seem up until now, like this would have been a group of people who would have made homophobic jokes. And, this is another part of the thing that bothers me. That seemed so out of character with how that group had interacted with each other until they then had to introduce a gay character 
Therefore, they had to kind of force a little bit of homophobic joking into the locker room. Up until that moment, we hadn't had any, like how great would it have been if we'd had two seasons of the occasional stereotypical locker room, changing room, homophobic remark, and gradually learned this about this person. Like you could have had this as a slow build, slow reveal, and we would have felt so much more invested then in the storyline. And instead it's just shoved down our throats over the course of one episode. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that in general right now is kind of what is dampening my uh, feeling about Ted Lasso is there's just so much going on. You know, like for instance, why is this new character, Keeley's friend? Why are, why are we really wasting stuff with that? Like, again, you could have more focused on that player and spent more time with that player than having an introduction of a character. That's just like a floozy ditz, you know, like, well, also it feels to me, I'll stick my neck out here and make a prediction. Like, I, f- I feel like I can see what's coming with her. Right. Which is she's going to kind of backstab Kaylee because she's only interested in her own, you know, self-promotion and progress. And Kaylee's going to realize that she can't Keely. just hand Keely, sorry, <laughs> going to realize that she can't just hand jobs to her friends. Like all of it just, it's just not particularly interesting as a, yeah. but it's a way, again, it just feels like. I mean, you ha- like this episode, you had so much going on, right? Like you had that storyline that looks like it may be developing. I, I agree with you. I think that's, you had the opening of the restaurant. You had Z- Zava or Zaha or whatever. What's his name? Uh, Zava, I think. Zava coming in. You had Ted Lasso having like a half mental breakdown because he finds out about uh, his wife and their ex-therapist. You have marriage counselor. Marriage counselor. You have the the player who's who's found out to be gay, although not openly yet. But you have like eight different storylines going through in this in a forty minute episode. Yeah, no, you're right. It's a lot, and uh, yeah. And, and multiple and the potential pregnancy of one of the main characters yeah. and ongoing relationship drama. Like it's every two minutes they're hitting you with a different, seemingly significant storyline. And it's yeah. a little bit overwhelming. And again, as I said, I think if you're then going to try and have meaningful social commentary, which uh, having a gay professional, primarily well, gay primarily player, I guess no need to add in professional there this uh you undo the significance of that social commentary by having nine simultaneous storylines yeah and you know they had like again they do have some really funny jokes and there are times where i i really laugh and i really like it and then there are other times where they're i think for me it's they're trying to be too witty sometimes and at the same time be like too dumb funny like you can't do both. You can't have Ted Lasso making jokes about actors that no one in the 21st century is going to know who they're talking about and like have them go around the room, you know, and like discuss the, the actors, best movies and stuff like that, which was funny, but I'm sure a lot of people didn't get it. And then the other end of the spectrum have a scene where they're all meditating around Zava and like Jamie Tart walks in and like walks out. Like you can't Which be was so decent. dumb and try and be so witty. Like you gotta, you gotta kind of skate one way or the other. And I can, I want to say as a positive, I actually think that Jamie Tart character development has been really good. I actually yeah. find him to be more interesting and funnier 
and kind of, in a sense, the kind of it seems as if he's aware of the farcical nature of some things, which is was yeah. He had some good jokes. Yeah, I will also add it to your references that just don't make sense to me. Uh, I cannot remember the name of the uh, well, Daniel, the Mexican footballer. Is his name Daniel? Yeah. He Danny when they, Dan, yeah, Danny. When they are making the, in the period in which they're making the kind of homophobic jokes, he makes a Norm Macdonald reference. And there is, which is immediately accepted and acknowledged by all the other players. I think you could walk into every Premier League dressing room right now, <laughs> offer a hundred million pounds to anyone who knows who Norm Macdonald is, and it would be no one. I mean, it's just, it's such a, not only is it culturally specific really to North America, but it's also then specific to a very type of person within North America. So uh, that just bothered me. And my final note on the episode, I get why he gives away the book of matches because it plays into the premonition from the psychic. However, he hands out these book of matches and people treat them as if he is handing them pure gold. Well, that was the other question. Like, why is he handing out matchboxes? Like, who does that anymore? No, I mean, this is the kind of thing you maybe have as you exit the restaurant in case you need them. But having that be the like, I hope this helps you to remember this evening. Oh, thanks. I'll toss this in that drawer that I have yeah. just in case I ever need matches in the future. Like, this is in case the power ever goes out and I've got a few candles lying around. <laughs> I'll think of your restaurant. And he was so excited that he had gotten them. Like, that was the other thing, too. It's like, oh, my God, you got yes. them. It's like, oh, what is it? Oh, they're yeah. matches? What? No, I expected them to be like a pin or some piece of jewelry or something significant. It's like, is oh, Is that no, where just... we're going wrong? If we just start doing the Big Chill podcast matches, are we just going to go through the roof? <laughs> We'd get Premier League footballers immediately on board. If that's the swag we sent out, Big Chill matches. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, yeah, again, like, I'm enjoying the episodes and there are some times where I think it's really funny, but it does seem too densely packed in and they're trying to rip through too many storylines. And I think that's taking away from the fun of the show a little bit, which season one was so much, there was so much less going on and it was able to be more funny. Um, The only other issue I had that I want to talk to you about in what premier league club does the, former best player but clearly second best player on the team all of a sudden go to an assistant coach i want to be the best and the assistant coach goes well i'll train you oh yeah well then i mean in fairness based on the world in fairness based on the world they live in i don't they don't appear to do much training so this might just be the idea of like Oh, no, no, we're going to start training. Yeah. Oh, okay. This sounds like a, a Mighty Ducks plot line. Like, I want to be the best. Well, we'll start training because you're a professional footballer and you're not training. <laughs> like, what? Also, the person when you're trying to, when you're a, you know, attacking player with tons of flair and you're now being outshone by another attacking player with tons of flair who's scoring spectacular goals, the person you want to train you is the hard-nosed central midfielder, you know? So, I mean, what are or we going to see? Maybe he's going to add that to his to his toolkit. Some crunching tackles, and he's just yep. going to be the yeah. Maybe, maybe he's going to be the all-round player from now on. Yeah, and I guess that might be the he might 
transition into being a, a midfielder. I mean, that's might be the way. And then he shines through that. So maybe what I'm saying is both stupid and smart, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it was a bit silly. Yeah. But I still think Roy Keane is kind of holding this show on his shoulders. You mean Roy Kent? <laughs> Roy Kent. <laughs> no, Roy. no, Roy Keane. He <laughs> loves this show so much. He, he holds the television. I would be interested. I'm sure he has commented on it at some point. I would be interested in knowing how Roy Keane feels about but yeah. being Brett portrayed. Goldstein, who plays Roy Kent, I think is 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 really driving this show. Him and at the moment so far in the season, him and Jamie Tart, I would yeah. say. But yeah, on that note, should we flip things over to our, our interview? Let's do it. Well, we're now delighted to be joined by our guest, Darren Tellett, journalist, broadcaster, a face and a name and a voice that will be very familiar to our French audience as sort of the English face of French football, but someone who's covered a wide range of sports. Thank you, Darren, for taking the time to join us. Well, very happy to be with you. And I guess it's maybe that's a good place to start. It's You have a kind of unique position, certainly within the French sports media. It's quite common to see foreign sports journalists appear in the UK or in the US covering certain sports. It seems to be less of a thing in, in certainly in France, but also in other European countries. How did it come about that you became mm. a, a kind of English journalist on French TV? Yeah, it is a kind of uh, weird thing when you think about it. Yeah, because obviously, you know, I operate in French and uh, any of the French people who've watched me on TV over here for the last 20 years, if they're tuning in today, it might be the first time they've actually heard me speak uh, in my language, you know, because, yes, I, I've, I've been working in French for, for, the, for the past 20 years on, on French TV. And it started um, in a very, you know, one of those strange stories where you don't expect this to happen at all. But basically, I was living in Paris as a sports reporter for Bloomberg News, the American company. And we were, when you had a small sports desk and we were covering just major events, basically, and I was writing a few sports business stories. And I'd been transferred over from London to Paris to cover uh, Soccer uh, World Cup in 1998. And then I stayed here and went out on the Tour de France uh, in the years when Lance Armstrong was winning the race at the beginning and when everybody was very enthusiastic about it at the beginning. Um, and I got to cover lots of big major sports events for Bloomberg. And then one day, having been here uh, for a few years, uh, and I guess people in the French media starting to get used to the idea that I was often around. You know, somebody said to me, hey, um, this French guy from French radio station said, you know, would you be free tonight? Because we're doing a, a show about you know, English football. And at the time, there were so many French players playing in the Premier League uh, that the, the French audience was very interested in, in what was going on in the Premier League. And they said, you know, like with your accent, you know, as an English guy who speaks French, but Obviously, I still have a bit of an accent when I speak French. He said, you know, it would, it would really be kind of cool on the radio as an audio thing. Uh, the audience, French audience will hear your English accent and will immediately give you some kind of credibility, you know, because they go, oh, you know, the, the French like to call English guys uh, roast beef uh, because that's what they imagine that we eat and we call them frogs. And anyway, uh, this guy said to me, you know, have an accent of a, a roast beef on the radio, you know, it would be kind of cool for us. It would be fun. So I decided not to take umbrage at the fact that I still had an accent because I was like, 
I'm sorry, what accent? Um, but I was like, okay, yeah, sure, I can, I can do that. You know, as long as you don't, you know, don't pretend I'm in England or something. I live in in Paris. And he said, don't worry, we're not going to say where you are. We're just going to say, you know, we'll be joined this evening by uh, by our English friend, you know, Darren Chulette, as they pronounce it in French. And and there I was on the radio, uh, national radio in France, talking about French soccer players in, in England, and apparently. That went quite well because they asked me to come back the next week. And, and before I knew it, I was doing this as a regular thing. Uh, and before I knew it, uh, also being exploited, of course, because I was not being paid for anything for, for this at all. But it was just fun for me. And I thought this is something different. You know? And I was, uh, when I started living in France many years ago, uh, one of the questions I used to ask myself was, how can I turn my disadvantage, i.e. not really speaking the language uh, and being different, how can I turn that into an advantage? You know, Actually bring something to the table, be useful as an English guy in, in Paris. And of course, you had to get to the stage where you could speak the language uh, reasonably well before I could actually make that work for me. But I suddenly realised at that moment, hey, this is actually, you know, now being an Englishman here, now I can speak a bit of French. This is a this is a card for me I can play, you know, and they were happy to have this English guy on the radio show. And it only lasted a few weeks before. Uh, and this is where we get to the TV things. This is a, the lucky break that I got was that a, a French TV program was being launched, or kind of relaunched, if you like. It was a Sunday night show. They used to call it uh, L'Equipe du Dimanche, uh, the, the Sunday team, if you like. And you know the French sports stadium over here is called L'Equipe as well. Yeah? So L'Equipe du Dimanche, the Sunday team, was an uh, 11 p.m. show. This is, I'm talking 20 years ago, 21 years ago. And this was your one rendezvous of the week where you could see all the goals uh, if you're living in France, all the goals scored in England, in Germany, in Spain and in Italy, the four major championships, you know. And this was before social networks, social media. So for many of the games, you know, you had not seen the goals, you know. Maybe over the weekend, uh, the Canal Plus, who were the, the, the TV station who was doing this show, they might show a couple of English games uh, and maybe the big game in Spain and the big game in Germany. But that was it. All the other games... You didn't know. All you knew was was the score. You hadn't seen the goals. There was nowhere to go, you know, like today, where you can see the goals, you know, minutes after they've been scored on on your phone or something. Back in the day, you know, this wasn't possible. So this was a real rendezvous. You know, people would turn up at eleven on on Sunday because they wanted to see what Barcelona had done. They wanted to see that goal they'd heard about, you know, scored by somebody, you know, in the in the Premier League. They wanted to see what Juventus had done that that weekend. Um, so the show was already quite popular until, the, the, like I say, the guy decided to redesign it and have uh, somebody to represent each of those championships. So around the table with a, you know, the experienced pro presenter, they went out and looked for, well, an English guy in Paris who can talk about the Premier League, somebody from Spain, somebody from Germany, somebody from Italy. And thankfully for me, uh, they were as they were reaching out for people, they got in touch with the guy from the radio station and said, God, you know, we're really desperately trying to find people. You know, the show's got to start soon. We don't have a, you know, we don't have anybody for the moment for England. Do you know any guy, any guys who, or girls who could do this? And my man was like, you know, hey, I have a roast beef for you, you know, and they put me in touch with the guy at Canal Plus. This was, you know, literally uh, days before the show started. I had a phone call from the guy at Canal Plus on Monday. We had lunch together on Tuesday. And I made my debut on the Sunday. No rehearsal, no casting or no, you know, they were just that they were so desperate. They only had me, you know, and my great good fortune was that around the table, all of us were amateurs doing TV for the first time, more or less. And we were all pretty bad, if I'm honest, including me. 
Um, but I wasn't the the worst. So the time that it took them to get rid of one or two of the other guys who just weren't made to cut out for the TV, uh, by the time they got rid of those people, I kind of started to get the hang of it. And, and they kept me on and I did a second season. And uh, even though I still had my full-time job with, with Bloomberg in it, and at the end of the second season, I had to make a choice whether I was going to join TV full-time or, or carry on as a, as, a, as a written journalist, a press journalist, which is what I was. And I decided to, to plump for the TV fun. And, and, and it, was a, it was a risky decision. But here I am 20 years later. It's all been, it's all been a lot of fun. Yeah, and you kind of carved out that identity, a kind of semi-caricature maybe of an English person in terms of what you represented on French television. How much did you then lean into that, say, even from an, an accent standpoint? Did you try and put on in a sort of extra English person speaking French accent than you maybe would have done as soon as you... Yeah, your question is why. At the beginning, uh, I didn't do anything in particular at all. I just turned up with my regular clothes on and the way I spoke was the best I could do in French, you know? Um, and I really am quite unaware of any of the accent that I have. I know that even today, after 30 years in France, I speak fluent French, but I, you know, I can get away with maybe a couple of minutes if I meet somebody new, a French person. They after it's only going to take them a couple of minutes to work out that you know, okay, my French is is fluent, but yeah, something's going to give me away. You know, as you all know, you know, everything in France has a section. You know, a bottle is not just a bottle; it's you know, it's une bouteille. You know, it's not a you know, everything has a it's a la, le or la. You know, the table. You know, you got to go. Oh God, is it la table or le table? So yeah, I'm going to make a mistake somewhere along the line. But uh, so that wasn't a thing that I leaned into. What I did lean into was the look. Uh, the style and my clothes, because, yeah, um, after a few weeks, you know, it's a very weird thing when you've never done TV before and that wasn't something you were looking to do. It's kind of accidentally happened to you. Well, you suddenly start realise that people start recognising you, you know, when you're taking the bus or something, you know, and, you know, they go, isn't that that guy off the TV? And people start talking to me or coming up to me. And then I I start to realise that, this is a whole new medium. I've been writing stories up to now. Nobody cared whether I was well-dressed or whether I was in my pajamas at the office. But suddenly, of course, the, before I even open my mouth, I'm on TV, they're looking at you. This is the first thing they see is, is what you look like. And, and it's true that at that time, my, my vestimentaire, uh, kind of, the things I used to wear back in the day, I was more like, um, I don't know, maybe on a kind of Beatles vibe. Um, sort of late 60s, like, sort of slim slim fit suits and a few polka dots like I'm wearing today actually but yeah nothing out of the ordinary and I admit that after a few months and and when I realized how much what I was wearing seemed to interest people then I really did lean into it and I used to go to London and pick up clothes at Carnaby in Carnaby Street I used to go to Camden Market and I met this crazy story I met an Austrian tailor in Camden Market in London, which is a huge uh, marketplace for kind of alternative and secondhand sometimes clothes. This was an, an Australian, an Austrian tailor whose whole thing was like swinging 60s in, in London. That was his scene, you know. He was totally into it. And he was remaking clothes from that period. So some of the stuff was like way out there, a bit like, like Austin Powers, you know. So that was, the, that was how far I went. You know, I once turned up in an Austin Powers style um, purple corduroy suit 
I think that was probably uh, like I couldn't go any further down that line. And I had to kind of like scale it back little by little after that. But yeah, I did lean into it because it was fun and people seemed to enjoy it, you know. And when I went out and met football players, for example, you know, and I started doing interviews with, with guys who played in Premier League, all the French guys and then particularly some of the guys who, who have African backgrounds were coming up to me. They loved it, you know, all this colour and everything. And I remember meeting Colo Touré. I don't know if you remember him. He used to play yeah. football. And I saw him after a game and he came running up to me. He's like, oh, Darren. And he was chatting away. He said, don't move. I've got to go and get my wife. She loves you. <laughs> <laughs> and his wife comes up, you know, like, ah, oh, they like your colorful clothes. You know, we love you for this. And blah, blah. so, you know, I realized that this was, you know, like a fun thing. And I also realized that, hey, you know, these things do matter. You're on TV and what you look like, you know, it has an effect. So for a little while there, I really let myself go. <laughs> It's quite funny because one of the things I read that I really enjoyed was that you, uh, the Daily Telegraph called you the Austin Powers oh, really? of French television. So at least at least I'm happy you appreciate it, you know. And I'm I'm sure it's a nickname you uh, take some pride in. It sounds like so that's, you're gonna that's have good fun to with these things, you know. <laughs> so I, I guess going back a little to the beginning when you first started on radio and then got into television. I mean, I've also lived in France for a few years, and and Parisians can be very particular about their language. So were you ever really nervous and like how long did it take you to get really comfortable speaking the language and not saying like, oh, crap, are they going to are they going to roast me? I guess you're not in the social media days, so you, you probably got saved from that a little bit, you know, where the first few ones maybe had some some mess ups and they weren't able to kind of post on TikTok about how how bad your accent was or or your grasp of the language. But was that was that something you were nervous about or very self-conscious about? No, when not you started? at all, because um Funnily, you know, it was almost encouraged. They, they even seemed to like it when I when I made mistakes. It, you know, it made it more fun, you know. And this is something where, where you're lucky, you know, you're actually being able to play your foreigner card and get away with it. Of course, yeah, if I made a, if I was French and I made a grammatical error, you know, people would be all over you, you know. But as a, as a, as a foreigner, and you know how it is even, you know, if you come over on vacation or something, if you make the effort, you know, to say a few words, then people will appreciate it and they'll let you get away with, you know, murdering their language. So, yeah, I was, I felt very lucky in the fact that people were really very kind to me about that, you know. And I, I actually, somebody somebody sent me a little passage of, of one of my first shows from 20 years ago the other day. And uh, and with the guy who used to be the presenter, we, we watched it together because we had lunch together the other day. And we were laughing about it because, you know, I... Uh, I, I actually saw this bit where my French seemed to be better than it, than it is perhaps today. And I was like, what? I had this memory of myself being dreadful at the beginning. Uh, um, but apparently, you know, occasionally I would actually bring out, you know, like a decent sentence. So I was quite surprised. So, no, uh, to be honest, it wasn't a problem. It actually turned into being like another draw for me. You know, they, they enjoyed the, the fact that I had an accent. Uh, once or twice I did mess up. Uh, they sent me out, for example. I became like, you know... It's almost like the token English guy, you know, anything that was happening, you know, on an English sports front, they'd send me along, you know, suddenly once they'd hired me, you know. So there was a horse racing uh, thing down at uh, Longchamp, the big racetrack in the Paris suburbs, and uh, uh, the Arc de Triomphe, the big race at the end of the year. And some English trainers were coming over, English horses were very well fancied this year, as they often are, actually. And they sent me along to, to help out the, the, the girl who used to do the interviews because her English wasn't very good. And they said, oh, you can kind of shadow her and, you know, you can ask the questions in English and translate them back for her and all this kind of stuff. So one day, you know, I famously really cocked up uh, standing next to her. She was asked, she asked a question in French to this English horse trainer who was his name was Sir Michael Stout, you know, who was very well bred as well bred as his horses. And he said he replied to this question in French. She said, um, 
what did she say? She said something along the lines of, you know, it's been raining a lot recently. You know, are, are you worried about the, you know, the ground uh, for your horses? And what I did, rather than say it in English to him, I, for some reason, had brain fog. And I just paraphrased her French question into another French question. So I almost <laughs> repeated the same thing. And Sir Michael Stout, the bugger, this is typical English, you know, of course he spoke bloody fluent French, but just wouldn't, you know, but wouldn't tell us. So he looked at me, you know, in a kind of amused way, tapped me on the arm and said, um, en anglais, s'il vous plaît? <laughs> in other words, can you say that in English now, please? And of course, that evening I was on the football show and they they showed that clip, you know, during the football show. They're like, you know, hey, you know, we, we thought that Darren would be useful as a translator. This is how it worked out. Yeah. <laughs> Has that been interesting for you then? It must feel quite odd in a sense to have carved out quite a famous identity in France. But then when you go back to England or when you interact maybe with English athletes, to not have that same level of recognition or visibility, is that, do you like having almost anonymity if you're going home versus fame in this country that you've now made your home, I suppose? But sort of. Yes, well, you know, it, it is funny. It is funny. I go back to London sometimes and, yeah, you're right. You know, no English person is going to call out to me in the street, you know, and say, ah, but I can be in London and so, you know, some French guys might, you know, might shout out my name, you know, like, ah, with the French, as they call me, and come running over to get a picture or something. And my English friends, who of course never see me on TV, they're like, "Oh Christ, you are you are well known in France, you know?" Because they, they never get to see what I do. So it's kind of funny, yeah. When you go back to England, you, you, you're, you're nobody. But then over here, um, it's not like I'm a rock star either. Let's face it. You know, I'm on a you know I'm on a pay TV. Uh, so it's yeah, it's only people who watch sport who, who know me. But what's funny is. I guess that's like 10 or 15% of the country over here, which still still means, you know, 15 or 20 million. But anyway, what happens is quite often in, in France, there'll be a group of people in the street and, and one or two of the group will know me so well because I'm in their house every other day. You know, if you're really interested in sports, then, then you might have me in, in your lounge, you know, very regularly. And the other people in their group who aren't big sports fans will not have ever seen me before, you know? So you get this funny situation sometimes where there's one or two guys like, going, oh my God, it's that guy, you know, this guy, and he's like, ah, can I have a photo? And the other guys in the group like, or, you know, you know, or maybe his wife's like saying, you know, what, who, what, what? I've never seen him before. Why are you so excited, you know? So it's kind of fun. Yeah, you must also then struggle with it. I, I once met Mike Brown in an airport, the old, well, still rugby player, but England fullback, yeah. uh, and asked for a picture with him and an autograph. And then people piled on to, you know, kind of the unfortunate snowball effect of once one person asks, people realize that it's someone famous. And at one moment, someone came up to ask for a photo for him from him. He took it with them. And then afterwards, they said to him, and by the way, who are you? Who are you? <laughs> and, which I felt very sorry for him at that moment. Uh, but he was very polite about it. But I mean, I suppose you might get a similar thing. You know, if you're in a bar or a restaurant and all of a sudden people start to think he's clearly famous, but I'm not sure who he is. I better, t I better get a photo just in case. Yeah, sometimes it give you some uh, kind of embarrassing moments. Like I say, it was weird, you know, when I started out because it, you know, it took me a little while to get used to that because when you've been, you know, when you're writing sports stories, nobody ever knows who the hell you are. Uh, and then suddenly from being on this TV screens, people seeing you, like I say, on the bus, on the metro or around town, um, it's quite a strange thing at first when because people are looking at you, you know, and you feel rather uncomfortable. It takes a little while to get used to the idea that people are going to look at you uh, and get used to the idea 
that you know you as it went, as you become a public face you have to accept the fact that you know people will come up and talk to you but i'm again you know this is not in any way a complaint i'm really lucky because when you do sports you know you're a sports broadcaster but nobody dislikes you you know if they watch you they've chosen to be there they've chosen to be watching sports you know you happen to be the guy who's you know maybe hosting the show which is what i do now rather than back in the day when i was just to you know come on as the funny english guy and talk about a few highlights from the premier league now i'm a, I'm a sports host and people would come up and, and because they're genuinely interested in sports. So when they come up, it's always with a smile. People always come up and want to be, you know, positive with me. You know? So so it's extremely fortunate. I mean, I feel very lucky because how many people have the this good fortune to do your job? You know, it's your daily thing. This is what you do. And have people come up to you and say, hey, really like what you do. You know, or you do a great job. I mean, there are people out there doing much more important jobs, obviously. You know? And very rarely do they get a big pat on the back, you know. And I get it all the time, you know. And this is so I really don't complain about being recognised or having, you know, people come up to you in the street. Yeah, sometimes you'd, you know, maybe you wish that they'd choose a better moment. I once got interrupted when I, I was having my first kiss uh, with a girlfriend uh, and on the streets. <laughs> and guys kind of almost like broke up the kiss to get a picture, you know. <laughs> Although what a way, what a way to impress the girl. So you're, you're getting mobbed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh, i mean was was sports journalism always the dream growing up is that what you'd always want to be or did this kind of just progress into you know what what you're doing what you became uh the dream was to be a journalist uh at first i wanted to be uh as i as i grew up i come from a working class family and nobody had ever been to college before um so it wasn't so easy to to convinced myself that I could do something like be a journalist. It seemed, you know, like a, a big jump from my dad, who was a factory worker, and my mum, uh, who brought up the four kids and like used to clean people's houses for them. Uh, so being the eldest of four, having no role model for going off to college or anything, I kind of, you know, wandered around a little bit in my early, uh, in my late teens and early 20s, not really knowing what, what the hell I was going to do or how I was going to go about it. But, but sure, as a kid, when I was 12, 13, 14, and realized, you know, that I was quite good at school and my favorite thing was writing. And so therefore, you know, English. And that's where I felt that, you know, maybe I had something to, to give. And when I had my first careers meeting at the age of 13 or 14 and the guy sat down in front, you know, I had to sit down in front of this old guy, you know, who said, I, I, I see him now as an old, he's probably like my age, but you know, I don't think of myself as old. But yeah, we know when you're 14, you're like, you know, anybody who's over 40 is like, you know, ancient. So I was like, who's this old guy? And the old guy's like, so what do you want to do when you grow up, young man? And I said, well, I'd like to be a journalist. And I'm not joking. The, the guy didn't even blink before saying to me, have you thought about the army? <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> this guy, like, give me a break, man. You know, I know I come from, you know, maybe he had my address. He could see like, you know, I was, I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks or something. You know, but I was like, give me a break. Give me a chance. I'm 14. You're not supposed to be here to like rain on my parade. You're supposed to encourage me. But it's funny how I, you know, that's still in my mind today, you know, like a long, long, long time afterwards. So there was something. You're, you're still scared that one day yeah, you might right, be recruited you know, again. No, no <laughs> I, I, not the army. No, I, I always wanted to be a journalist, but it kind of, I kind of lost it, lost the idea somewhere along the road because I went away to study. I didn't read. Really, I only stayed one year at college and I was a barman and I was just hanging out and having fun with my friends who were still studying. And then I came over to Paris on a whim uh, with a friend of mine because he actually had a plan. So I just followed him and we ended up teaching English here, you know, in the sort of language schools. So for a little while out there, I was just 
kind of, I wouldn't say bumming around, but not far off it, just having a good time and not really having a plan, you know? And I think maybe that was because of the, you know, my upbringing. I didn't have anybody behind me saying like, you know, hang on a second there, old chap, you know, you're supposed to be a lawyer or a doctor and get back on track, you know? For my mum, for example, you know, I was in Paris teaching English, you know, it was like, that was an amazing success story already. So there's no pressure, you know, from the family to like do something else, you know, like get, get a proper job or something, you know. Um, so it, it took me a little while to actually think, you know what, maybe I do need to try to give it a go and, and become a journalist because this was, you know, the one thing I did really dream of as a kid. And I went, I left Paris basically after a few years here in my first day, I went back to to England and, and, had this naive idea that at 26, 27, um, I could become a journalist. Uh, and of course, at that time, I had neither experience nor qualifications. Uh, but as you probably already realized, you know, not bad at the old, you know, uh, bigging myself up. So I, I ended up, after six months of being unemployed uh, back in England, uh, realizing that the C my honest version of the CV was going to get me nowhere. Uh, and I thought it's time for a little bit of a creative writing exercise, you know. So uh, I got out a whole new piece of paper and did a whole new CV, um, imagining a different background for myself. So, I mean, there were some things which were true on it. You know, I still had the same name and date of birth. Uh, but let's, <laughs> but let's, say oh, okay. that, let's say that <laughs> that degree that I started in Manchester, now I had finished it and, uh, you know, with flying colours. And also, let's say, rather than saying I'd been in Paris for six years teaching English, Suddenly, the last two or three years, I'd been a journalist in Paris, you know, writing for an English language newspaper. And the lucky thing, guys, is that back in that back in those days, I'm talking uh, 25 years ago, maybe a bit longer now. But back in those days, we're talking pre-internet, you know. So if you turned up with a CV and said, yeah, you've done this, they couldn't then, you know, Google it to see if it was true. you know, And they couldn't see any articles anywhere because this didn't exist yet. And this was my big, you know winning card basically when I was back in London you know yeah yeah I've been working for this newspaper in Paris and stuff you know and the guys were kind of like oh yeah tell me a little bit about that but they weren't really you know they didn't say show me your body of work so I got away with it basically you know I blagged my way into my first job you were like the Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> catch me if you can <laughs> maybe something a little bit like that yeah <laughs> so then I mean obviously you know you've spoken about how you've covered more than just football and I guess that's your first passion, perhaps. Mm. But what's been the sports that, what have you enjoyed covering the most that you maybe didn't expect? You kind of came into with very little knowledge or interest, and kind of getting involved from a, a coverage standpoint has, has made you develop a kind of a, a love for the sport. I would say cycling. Um, when I grew up in England, cycling as a sport was still a very, very minor thing. You might think it still is. Um, but in England, it's become much more popular. Uh, in recent years, thanks also to the fact that lots of English guys did really well in the in the Tour de France. And that was something when I was with Bloomberg that I got a chance to cover, like I, I said earlier, uh, at the time of Lance Armstrong coming through, you know, as a contender at the, uh, at the Tour de France. So that was, for me, a great experience because I, I love cycle racing. I love watching cycling. I'm really into it. And at the time, it, not that many people in the English sports journalism field, you know, were capable. You know, there was really, like I say, a niche. There was one or two, you know, like magazines, you know, those guys knew what they were talking about. But 
even most of the major newspapers in England didn't have a, a cycling expert on their teams, you know. So for Bloomberg, you know, I had this possibility of writing the occasional story about, about the sport of cycling. And like I said, the timing, again, was fantastic. This is why I often, you know, say this, but I feel I've been very lucky, you know, with the, the way things have gone along, you know, during my career, because time gave me all sorts of opportunities. You know, I start with being with Bloomberg just before there's this World Cup in France and I can play the, you know, the card that, oh, I speak French, you know, I used to live, you know, that helped me and I, I got to cover the World Cup. And then I'm in Paris when when Lance Armstrong comes along, you know, to, to, to win the Tour de France for the first time. And let's not forget that, you know, I don't know about any younger people listening to us, but back in the day, in 1999, 1998, at the end of the 90s, basically, cycling was hit by a huge doping scandal. And if, if, well, there was this fear uh, that, you know, the Tour de France might have to be like wiped off the calendar because there was, you know, nobody could believe the results anymore. And even though it's like ironic, of course, now we know that Lance Armstrong was a was a terrible cheat, uh, like a lot of other people at that time. But when Lance Armstrong came along to win his first Tour de France, the story was fantastic because here was a guy who had come back from testicular cancer to be, be back on his bike, to be challenging for the world's most famous race, and to win it as an American, you know, and I was writing for an American news agency, you know, Bloomberg News. So this was a huge story for us. And I was here at the heart of it. And another thing, guys, was, you know, I wrote a big preview of the race that for the the, the, the year he won it uh, for the first time. So I had this interview with him on a, a nice little one to one for an hour, wrote a big story, you know, saying how this, you know, this cancer comeback and a survivor from America could perhaps, you know, relaunch cycling's biggest race because a victory for you know for Lance Armstrong would give you know the cycling world a huge boost if only we knew but anyway it was a great story you know and I went down there to cover the beginning of the race and I got into the village where it was kicking off on the Saturday I got there Thursday and Lance Armstrong wanted to do his press conference on that Thursday evening and they had hired a translator the people who organized the race but he only arrived on Friday, the, the translator, So, because most people do their press conferences the day before. So they asked me to step in, you know, at the last minute. So again, you know, I'm drawing, I'm using that card as the, the English guy who speaks French. I found myself on stage with Lance Armstrong, who I'd just done the interview with a couple of weeks earlier. So he was like, oh, yeah, I remember you. And then he realized, you know, thanks to this interview, because the whole world's media was there, TV, radio and press. And it was an hour long press conference where I knew that Lance Armstrong spoke reasonably good French. He understood French rather well because he did ride briefly for a French team. And there I was on stage with him, you know, being careful to get the translation right, showing him also by what I was saying and how I was saying it that I knew the sport and understood the tactics and what was going on and everything. So so that helped me have a good relationship with him. He trusted me, you know, from the beginning because he's like, okay, this guy seems okay. Uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't know at that time, you know, how, how Lance Armstrong would go on to win the Tour de France and how he would win the Tour de France, you know. But at the beginning, it was a fantastic uh, experience for me to be out there covering this event, having access to this guy who is, you know, becoming the, the dominant force in this sport, you know. So it was rather exciting. And uh, and the whole adventure, logistically speaking, of being out on the road for three weeks and covering an event like that, wow, that is really something, you know. And until you've done it, you just can't realise, A, how tiring it is because you know you never stay in the same hotel bed for two nights you know you it is the tour de france you do go all around france you know um which is quite something you know and it's back in the day again before you had something you know like a gps in your car 
And I was a one-man band in the, in the first uh, year or two that I covered the thing. So I was there in the car, you know, I'd finished, the, the stage would finish, I'd write two or three stories afterwards, you know, uh, for, for Bloomberg, you know, the race report, like, you know, like a brief, then a flesh it out, then with quotes, then a preview for the next day, and then maybe <clears throat> maybe I'd touch up a, you know, a colour piece which I was, I'd been working on. It would get to like nine, ten o'clock at night, I'd finally finished filing my stories, try and get a bite to eat somewhere, then I'd have to get in my car, open up the map, you know, the old paper maps, which, you know, who uses those? I'd, and I'd be in a car on my own in the middle of France somewhere with a map this big, you know, like, OK, so I'm here. How do I get from the here to here to the hotel where I'm sleeping tonight? You know, I'd get lost. I'd turn up at, you know, two in the morning. I'd have to be out of the hotel by six or something in the next day because there's another mountain stage coming up. You had to be there early. Otherwise, you'd miss. Anyway, it was kind of chaotic and crazy. And it absolutely um, exhausted me. But they're some of the best memories I have because it, I found it thrilling to be out there and meeting all these guys. Now, I have great admiration for people in that sport because it's such a tough sport, you know. And uh, the danger is there as well, you know, with the accidents they have, you know. And every now and then we have a tragedy in cycling. But it was it was really thrilling to be out there and to meet these people, to have close contact with, with the stars. Uh, so, yeah, Tour de France was perhaps my, my most exciting thing outside of football. Staying on the Tour de France theme briefly then, eventually the narrative mm -hmm. with Lance Armstrong started to shift. And for a while, it would, there was a thought that it was a kind of a persecution almost from the French press. In particular, I think Lakeith kind of leading the charge that they were upset that an American was coming and winning the Tour de France and some of the accusations associated with him with doping that he was so vehemently de denying. When did you start to see that kind of narrative shift and when was there a change maybe within the press and the atmosphere, depending on where they were from, in terms of how they <clears throat> perceived him as a figure? Well, it was fascinating because at first, you know, uh, uh, there's always, you know, a minority who, who doubt any champions winning anything in any sports, you know, um, as if like, you know, if you if you finish first, you must have, you know, you must be doing something, um, sadly. But in cycling, of course, that's there's a, a bigger number of people who are suspicious because cycling has had all sorts of problems with drug taking in the past. Um, but at first, you know, after the, the, the troubled years at the, at the end of the 90s, the Armstrong story was a feel-good story even in France. And most, most people, at least for the first year or two, thought it was great. And then, then there was his attitude, you know. Lance Armstrong is, you know, kind of... I had close contact with him. He was, you know, he could be quite scary, you know. Um, he had a real force of character. And when he fixed you with those steely blue eyes of his, you know, and told you his truth, you're kind of like, yeah, okay, man, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm going to write. That's, that's, that's okay, you know, because you wanted to believe him for a, for a start. You know, the guy's just recovered from cancer, and and he's telling you, hey, you know, why would I, you know, having come back from that, do you think I'd put stuff in my body that I didn't know about? You think I'd take a risk? You know, like, you know, what are you talking about, man? You know, how dare you kind of thing, you know? And you'd be like, oh, okay, you know, and then you realize afterwards he never had actually, you know, he used to say things like, you know, I don't cheat. Oh, I don't do this. Or, you know, I wouldn't do that. But he never actually said, no, I don't take drugs, you know, because that was a step too far. But he was an extremely intelligent guy and a, and a, and a magnificent athlete. And I, I still think to this day, had everybody been uh, not cheating, if everybody was clean, then he still would have been winning. You see what I mean? He basically came along at a time where, and this is how he, he convinced himself to, to take these, these, these products. He knew that he was better than most people uh, in cycling at that time. And suddenly, from being the guy who could win races 
he couldn't keep up with people anymore and he knew full well what they were doing. So in his mind, to make it a level playing field again, he just needed to take the same stuff as everybody else. And for him, therefore, that's why he was able to say and really believe, I think, no, I'm not cheating. Because what he meant was we're all taking stuff. So i.e., you know, like that's not cheating. If everyone's doing it, it's not cheating. It's kind of like, you know, this is the way it is. This is what I've had to do because, you know, because that's what everyone else is doing. But now that I think in his mind now that it was like, OK, I'm just doing what everyone else is doing. Therefore, we're good. We can go. So, you know, it did turn around, of course. And once, you know, once, once little signs started appearing, little cracks in the story, you know, because he'd get maybe, you know, he'd, maybe he'd fail a test on something and then he'd get out of it on a technicality or come up with some sort of, you know, story which got him off the hook. Because you have to remember also that the cycling, uh, uh, the guys who were running cycling in those days, the, the, the Federation, didn't want this to come out. You know, they, they wanted to help Armstrong cover up the stuff because they knew, you know, that if it came out that this guy was cheating, like this could be the end of the sport, you know? So, you know, it was, it was a really tough time. And I did have one or two moments, for example, in the, in the Bloomberg newsroom where uh, Lance Armstrong would call me, you know, because he knew I was in France and I had, you know, certain information and, and I knew the stuff that was going on and, and he wanted to get his story out there. So, I, you know, every now and then I would get used as a, as, a, as a journalist because he had something to say and he needed a, a voice you know uh, and a story and he knew that Bloomberg as a press agency a news agency had you know the possibility to get stories in, in, in newspapers around the world so every now and then you know I would actually get that 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 voice on the phone you know everyone around me in the office was kind of like a, fuck it's Lance Armstrong on the phone you know like, Shh. and I'd be so yes you know what is it I can do for you it's kind of, kind of strange things that happen to you sometimes along the way. But that was quite, yeah, it was you put, quite something. You put used in inverted commas there. As a journalist, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I presume at, one, at some point you know you're being used, but you also know that Lance Armstrong is a uh, valuable enough contact that you are sort of happy. It's, it's a deal you're kind of agreeing to. How do you balance that then as a journalist? Yeah, that's a good question. Was Bloomberg was very, uh, a very strict school. Um, you couldn't just write a story, you know, with one voice in it normally. Um, so you, I would have to go and then you know, get other voices, other sources. But when it was a, a story like that, when it was something, you know, with such a major figure, uh, you would they would allow me to 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 write it in a certain way. We you know which see it wasn't it's not my voice. It, it was quite clear that you know we are saying what Lance Armstrong has has told us, kind of thing. You know, and then I would go back and talk to other people in the sport to see what we could uh, get going, you know, to, to flesh out the story. But yes, you know, it's, it's, you're, you're right, of course. When somebody that important in a sport, you know, is calling you, then you just want to use that, you know, and it's a great contact to have. So so my employer was happy that, that I was being used in that way as long as it, you know, we continued to write stories which were balanced, you know, and gave other people's point of view as well. Yeah, and it's and when you watch all the documentaries and things about yeah. you know what what happened, the common thing is like exactly what you said. You know, he was very intelligent mm. and very persuasive, and it sounds like you know he he was able to use his contacts in that kind of way. So it it does make sense. And when you first started the story, I thought you were going to tell us it was another bad translation on your part. He, was that he did he did admit right right at the start he admitted, and you just said he did it accidentally. <laughs> I said my first press conference I was. Yeah, what are you talking about? I just didn't translate it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I mean, I mean, kind of going off of that, which I'm, I'm sure he was probably a, a, yeah. a great person to interview and had a real good conversation with. And you know, a lot of times 
people always want to know what your, what are your worst interviews? What were the ones that you couldn't wait to kind of end or get off because it was tough? But what are some of the best people that you've ever interviewed that, you know, after it's done, you, you wish like, damn, I wish I had another two, four, eight hours. I could talk all day to this person. Now, what, what were some of like the best ones in, in your mind that you, you'd love I to think, just keep uh, talking all the time? People like Eric Cantona. You know, uh, the French football player when he was with Manchester United. He was a fascinating figure. Um, you know, kind of all, the, the, the most charismatic ones are obviously the ones you want to hang out with more because they fascinate us, you know. Cantona was one of these guys who just filled a room with his presence and didn't really say much. And this was like part of his success uh, in English football was he almost never spoke. And then, of course, when he did, he would come out with weird stuff about seagulls and trawlers and then get up and walk away, you know, so just fascinating, you know, so it was wonderful to get time with him. And occasionally I did get to time, some time to hang out uh, for a big piece I did, you know, I once wrote a, an Observer story with, with Eric Cantona, spent the weekend with him. And that was rather, rather special because, you know, you had to get his trust. Uh, and this was one of the lucky things, again, about being the Englishman on French TV. He saw me, saw what I did. And so, I think he gave me, he was nicer to me than he would be to most French journalists, you know? It's almost like he would sneer at the French journalists and then like, oh, he'd be like, oh, there's the English guy. You know, he knows what he's talking about, you know, which I didn't. But anyway, but uh, it was nice of him to, to, to be so kind. And he was a, a fun person to hang out with and to write about. And I think other people with, with great charisma include, you know, like Zinedine Zidane, who I interviewed a couple of times. Um, and found very hard to break through because when he was a player, I don't know if you remember, but he didn't like talking in front of a camera at all. It was really tricky to get anything out of him, you know. So that was a real, you know, I enjoyed the challenge, you know, of actually make, seeing if I could get him to say, to say anything interesting. Now, of course, he's been, you know, he's turned into a football manager, which none of us expected when he was, you know, when we were covering him as a player because he was so introverted as a as a football player, at least, you know. I saw him behind the scenes sometimes and saw that, you know, he was much different when he was with his friends and his colleagues, you know, his other teammates in the in the French team. But it was difficult to get anything out of him, whereas now, you know, he's in, he's used to being, you know, interviewed all the time as a manager. He did press conferences five times a week, you know, so he fitted it. He's, he's completely changed. But back in the day, you know, he was a, a fun person to try to, to, to get something out of. And then, so back in the days when I used to cover tennis uh, for Bloomberg, I would be at Roland Garros and hanging out with some of those people was interesting because I found that they had a a much easier relationship with, with, with press and journalists. They were used to talking, of course, after every game. And this is also a thing I've noticed you know, from afar, but you know, the American sports in, uh, as, a, as a whole, you have much better access as, as a sports reporter. You can actually go in the, in the changing room and talk to people. So Americans are much more at ease I found, you know, as a, in my early days as a reporter, that with, with the press and tennis people were similar. So I, I got lucky. I managed to sit in uh, with a young Roger Federer when he was being interviewed by a couple of Swiss reporters. So I kind of snuck in there and you know, they were, they're probably thinking, like, what's he doing here? But anyway, uh, the three of us, you know, like had this time with Roger Federer. And he was still young then, hadn't won a, a Grand Slam. He was, you know, a promising player. And to be honest, I'd just seen him play at Roland Garros, so he's still young. But he was quite quite moody in in those in the in the early days. And, he was and a bit of a bad boy a at first. Yeah, you know, and and if you told me, you know, that hey, this guy will go on to be, you know, perhaps the greatest ever player in tennis's history, you'd be you'd have been hard pushed to believe it, you know. But I did find him, you know, already fascinating as a speaker. You know, he was, you know, he could just sit there and and tell it uh, as he saw it, 
and be totally ease. Uh, whereas I was used to running into football players, as I was saying, and having to like trying to squeeze a decent sentence out of them. There's these guys, you know, just really uh, at ease. And I got to meet some of the, the former tennis greats as well. So when you get to talk to people like John McEnroe, you know, a different world, you know. And some of the French guys I've, I've, got, uh, I've been lucky enough to, to be able to hang out with. Uh, uh, Yannick Noah, for example, you know, that's Mr. Charisma. An amazing story, amazing family story with his dad being a you know, professional soccer player, him being a brilliant tennis player, still the last French guy to win Roland Garros. And then his son as you know very well, going on to be a, a big star in the NBA. I mean, you know, how many times does that happen, you know, to one family, you know? Three generations, three world-class athletes in three different sports. So that's a, a remarkable story. And I so I loved, I've always loved hanging out uh, on the rare occasions I've been able to do so with, with Yannick Noah because he's a real charismatic guy, you know, who's been there, done it, and likes to live it up when he tells you about it. Just maybe quickly following on from what you said about Eric Cantona, you said it maybe took him a little bit to warm to you and open up. Once he was more comfortable with you, is the Eric Cantona that you see publicly, is he the same person then in his private? Is he kind of speaking in vague philosophical sentences or does he become a sort of, <laughs> I don't want to use normal as a negative, but a kind of more yeah. normal person? No, he's now, now he's older, of course, you know, and uh, got, I, I think basically he enjoyed we were talking about how i enjoyed playing with it with the clothing side of things and sometimes went a little bit too far i think he enjoyed that as well when when he was a player towards the end of his career you know when he was younger he was a real hothead you know as a player and you know would just do crazy stuff on the field you know and when he was playing in france i mean i mean you saw him in england you know jump into the crowd with a kung fu kick on a spectator who'd who'd insulted him uh in france you know he he would you know kick opponents uh, spit at referees you know, uh, swear and shout at, you know, the French national football team manager calling him a dick and, uh, and all sorts of things. So that was before he got to England. Yeah. So when he got to England, I guess, you know, he decided that the less he spoke, the better he would be. Uh, and like I say, he turned that into a whole sort of, you know, mysterious, you know, uh, character and he did it very well. And as he got older, and as I, the rare times I see him around nowadays, because he's going you know, he's living in Lisbon right now. But anyway, the few times I see him, now he, he he still enjoys playing with it. He enjoys getting up on stage and you know reliving the moment of like, hey, I'm the kind of like <clears throat> slightly dangerous, you know, slightly mysterious French guy. You know, uh, for him it's become a fun thing. You know, and of course he gets to use that as well if he wants to. He can he can money that because advertisers love him. You know, he's such a big personality. <clears throat> and that reminds me, <coughs> excuse me, of the the ad he did in England when. Uh, I don't remember. I think I, I think it was Nike. But anyway, there were these. I don't know if you remember this. There were these huge ads all of, uh, at a certain moment around uh, around the country in England. Anyway, saying 1966 was a great year for British football. This is when Cantona was playing for Manchester United. And of course, 1966 for any British guy is immediately like, oh yeah, of course, that's the year where England won the World Cup. Still, the only time England ever won soccer World Cup. So. When you see the first picture, you know, like 1966 was a great year for British soccer or English football or whatever they used. You're like, OK, yeah, I get it. You're talking about the World Cup. No, the next picture was Eric Cantona was born. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very clever, you know, a great marketing line. And he was a big star in Manchester United at that moment. And that was that that fits so well. It's really clever because it fits so well with him. That's the kind of thing that, you know, 
he would now, you know, enjoy saying and have fun with, you know, uh, because he loves to be, you know, to go against the grain and be the, the rebel and everything. And that is part of who he is. Absolutely. Yes. But does he add on to that? Does he like, you know, play with it and exaggerate? Yes, he does, of course. And he enjoys going up on stage and saying, you know, like weird and wonderful things. <clears throat> and then I see him backstage, you know, and he'll say, I think I got them again there. I go, yeah, I think you did, Eric. I think you did, you know. <laughs> well, I guess maybe kind of transitioning a bit into the, the actual football discussion, just because it's a shame to waste not have your kind of knowledge and experience in covering the sport. Talking about the luck that you've had and the good timing, mm-hmm. not you know you've also coincided with covering French football at a moment when the the massive investment in PSG has put maybe French football a little bit more on the map than it was previously, even though they've had sure. success in in European leagues, in mm-hmm. European competitions prior to that. Uh, how much does it become tiresome a little bit to have the narrative of French football so be so dominated by what's going on with PSG? And do you think in any way it's a possible danger to the long-term success of football in professional football in France to just have one team really be the this, this sort of focus of all attention. I know why you're asking me that. At the same time, I'm tempted to say no, it's not really such a big problem. Um, look at Germany. Bayern Munich have been champions for the last 10 years. Do people think the Bundesliga is less interesting or, or of lesser quality because of that? Maybe some people do, but I, I watch German football regularly, you know, still exciting. The stadiums are full week in, week out, you know, great atmosphere when you want to go and see a game in Germany. Brilliant place to go and watch football. So PSG dominating, I don't think it's that much of a problem. I think that, well, in fact, I know that the owners of PSG were really genuinely hoping that their arrival would help boost the whole of French football and that, yes, other investors, you know, would be welcome uh, to, to help boost the whole level of French football. But I still think that despite PSG's problems, you know, they obviously winning the Champions League is is their holy grail and they haven't done it. And that is a problem because every year it comes around, every springtime when they don't go through to the final. It's a problem for everybody involved in the club. But I, I still think that, you know, they've kind of succeeded in what they wanted to do. I mean, you know, The fact we're talking about PSG is a sign of success in itself, in a way, because would we have been having a conversation about French football and PSG 10 years ago? Probably not, because it wasn't so interesting. But they've made it interesting, uh, even if uh, they probably would have enjoyed having more positive coverage sometimes. Of course, most of the time, people spend time uh, laughing at PSG's problems. But I found it a fascinating ride to to cover and to be so close to it. Uh, it really is something we you know which will be written about for, for years to come, I think. And it's fascinating to see how they've tried to recreate or to create different teams, you know, year after year with errors made along the way, but sometimes with great, you know, decisions made as well. I mean, at the beginning, when Leonardo was in charge of bringing players in, I have to remember that, you know, 2012, <clears throat> he brought in, you know, the young uh, Marco Verratti, who you know, very few people had even heard of became a superstar. And of course, he brought in Thiago Silva and Zlatan, who were the opposite. They were already stars with Milan, but went on to be two major figures you know, in recent years of PSG's success. You could build a team around them. And Thiago Motta was <clears throat> the other one that I used to absolutely love watching play. So they did have you know, some great moments. They did get to the final, of course, and they could have gone either way. And they, and they lost that one to, to Bayern Munich. And of course, it was a former PSG player who scored the only goal of the game, Kingsley Coman. So... 
yeah yeah there's, there's all sorts of narratives all, all the time but i don't think that um that it's a a, a bad luck story or a, or a, or a bad time story you know i think it's uh what, what was the expression people so it was the showbiz thing was you know, as long as they're talking about you then uh then that's the main thing and people will always be talking about this psg team won't they and so then i mean approaching you know probably another rebuilding period coming towards the end of the time with with messi certainly and and eventually with neymar and the chance to guess mm. build totally around mbappe <clears throat> where do you think how do you think they could more efficiently build around mbappe to take advantage of the the skills that he possesses in the hope of of getting over that final hurdle which is the missing champions mm. league win well for start I've spoken to lots of of people in in football, including coaches, you know, and I've had great good fortune to work with Arsene Wenger uh, over the years with BN Sports, who never won the Champions League, of course, uh, but also to have chatted to people like Jose Mourinho, who did. Um, But nearly every coach will say to you, winning the league is what counts, because that's over 38 or 42 games over a season. That's where you prove yourself as a coach. And they'll all say a competition like the Champions League, which becomes a, a knockout competition, it becomes a question of luck, you know. Are all your best players fit on the night that you need them on that quarterfinal, you know, away to Madrid or something? Or, you know, are you going to hit the post and the ball come back out or hit the post and the ball go in? You know what I'm saying is cup competitions, you know, things happen, you know, and you can just be unlucky and like Arsene Wenger, never win the Champions League. Um, so even though I, I, I accept that, yeah, this is how they're going to be judged, you know, the, the, these PSG years, as did they or did they not? reach their their goal of winning the Champions League. I find it fascinating right now uh, as to what might happen. And your question about Mbappe is obviously the one which people at the club are are wondering about. You know, for a start, you know, he chose to stay, but will he still want to stay? You know, is he already chomping at the bit? We don't know, do we? You know, is he already thinking, you know what, maybe I'll just do one more year than I am going to get out of here because, you know, he has that option. He's the man in charge. And the big stars these days in, in world sports have so much more power than they used to just a few years ago. Mbappe will decide, you know, he's got one more year of a contract and then a, an option, which he has to, both him and the club have to activate if he, if, he, if he decides to stay. He might well think, you know what, I'm never going to win the Champions League with PSG and I'll get out of here in a, in a year's time. It's possible. He's very attached to, he's a bit, you know, in that sense, like Cristiano Ronaldo, numbers records you know he wants to be the guy who so he's become the record goal scorer for PSG already he's only 24 you know no one at the club has ever scored as many goals he's, he's already got that one under his belt he's reaching week after week or month after month you know, there's a new record in sight there's a new aim you know something like in the French national team you know he's already set his sights on the number of goals that Michel Platini scored you know he's moving up the charts in the French team he's doing you know he's setting new records with PSG all the time Part of me thinks that I think, and a part of him likes the idea of staying with PSG for years and, you know, like being that guy who's from here and getting his hometown club to win things. I think that appeals to him and be the record guy for you know, for everything. But then there's also a part of him that just it just wants to win, just wants to win that Champions League. And if he thinks in it, in if he thinks this summer or next summer that it's not going to happen with PSG, it's going to be really hard to hold on to him and he's going to he's going to want to go somewhere else. But right now it's difficult to see where he would go, isn't it? Because having, you know, said no to Real Madrid when, you know, they so obviously were close to getting him, it's not going to be easy to go back there because you've got to, you've burnt bridges, you know, it's, tr- it's tricky. 
would you know Barcelona can't sign somebody who would cost that much right now because of their financial situation. So that leaves Italy and England. They, they could, could try. try, yeah. But that would that would leave. <laughs> I think no, I think Mbappe after what happened with Real Madrid, he would never go to to Barcelona. So that leaves Italy. But you know, Italian football not so rich right now to get somebody maybe of Mbappe's value be tricky. So that would leave England. And and where would he be a good fit right now? You know. In England, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because, you know, obviously a guy who is as good as Mbappe, you think, well, he kind of, any club would want him. But where would he go if he wanted to go to England tomorrow, you know? And be sure that, you know, it, this was a move because he wants to win the Champions League. Where would you go? Would he, you know, Manchester City are the best team in England, probably right now, even though Arsenal are the leaders. But would he go to Manchester City? I mean, can you imagine that? I don't know. They've already got Alland, you know, and who knows what's going to happen up there. Would are Liverpool the the same bet as they would have been a year ago? Because we don't know. Because Klopp is kind of rebuilding as well, you know. So I think he's in an interesting situation with PSG. The club obviously would like to build around him, uh, and perhaps therefore say thank you and goodbye to to Lionel Messi. But then, yeah, you need to. You need to bring in people who are going to make it happen around Mbappe. And right now, you would imagine that needs another, you know, maybe four or five new players. So that's a lot of money as well, you know. And as you were saying, always rehaul and redo and rethink and rebuild. It is kind of tiring, isn't it? And you're running out of coaches, you know, because you go through them so quickly. So I guess people, you know, would still want to come here and coach because, you know, who wouldn't? But, uh, but at the same time, even the top coaches know that it's a real challenge, you know, because they don't always seem to have uh, total liberty. Yeah, and I think you, so, you, there's a couple of good points there. I mean, because some parallels in a sense with Harry Kane in that once you start yeah. crunching the numbers, the, the number of viable landing spots for mm -hmm. any of these superstar players, they work their way down. And be Frank, just before you ask your question, I think the other interesting point that you said kind of at the beginning there and talking about whether or not this sort of PSG project has been a success based purely on the domestic dominance, mm -hmm. which is, you know, undeniable. It's very interesting to see the transformation, I think, in the coverage of European football leagues and as a whole, like Ferguson's sort of success at United or dominance there was mainly you know, yes, he won two Champions Leagues, but it's framed around the dominance in the league. Same yeah. with Wenger or even Mourinho early on at Chelsea. So we're not going that long ago when mm -hmm. your kind of European accomplishments weren't significant. But then say Guardiola, if he finishes at City and doesn't win a Champions League, yes. I think people would probably say it wasn't a successful stint in a, or at least didn't achieve the primary goal. Mm. Do you think across the board within PSG, if there's no Champions League win, during this kind of time period, mm. they would say, "Yeah, it was we we're still content with that. We we did what we aimed to do." Oh, I think they would say that. <laughs> do do I think they would believe what they say? No, I, I do I do think that they have really you know like set their sights on that as the you know this is what they need you know and and I think if you're running PSG uh, right now, the their viewpoint is you know winning the French league is just a given you know. They should also be winning the French Cups, which they're not going to win this year. So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, winning the French League is not enough anymore uh, for PSG. And it's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like Bayern Munich, isn't it? Look, you know, Bayern Munich are still in the Champions League, having eliminated PSG. And chances are they will be German champions again, even though they're being threatened by Dortmund this season. I think they'll probably still end up 
finishing top. And yet they've just kicked out their their trainer, their manager, their head coach, because it's not good enough, you know, because, you know, just winning the Bundesliga and having a still having a shout at the Champions League, a Champions League is not enough because they, they need to be, you know, they want to be 10 points ahead in, in, in Germany rather than fighting it out. with. I mean, this is how tough it is at the top, I guess, you know. You can be in charge of a team which is winning, you know, but you're not winning enough or not winning well enough or, you know, not winning everything. I mean, it's kind of crazy to me that Nagelsmann can be, you know, replaced because, you know, in the situation that Bayern Munich are in right now. And uh, Christophe Galtier at PSG will be obviously you know, under huge pressure right now because PSG can only, only win the French League. And yeah, that will probably be considered as not good enough. You know, so we're gonna we're gonna have some some weeks here of wondering whether he's still going to be on the bench next season, and if not, we'll be again in that cycle of okay, so you know who's it going to be now? And as you were saying, you know, like who do we rebuild with to convince Mbappe to stay here and be the main man? Yeah, yeah, and I guess going to, back to the Mbappe part, maybe going to the Premier League. I think of that transition as kind of in American sports, when they talk about, you know, going to like the New York market and the, the media is going to be on you 24 seven, every second, every move you make, whether it's on, like on the court, on the field, whatever, off the court, on the field, like it's constant. And I think with Mbappe, he's in a situation right now where, like you said, he's in his hometown, he's in his home country, he's dominating there. You know, he's, he's on top of the world, but if he were to move to the premier league, what, in terms of like a mental aspect, do you think, that will be tough for him as a young kid who's never had this constant barrage where he could go out and play, you know, a team in, in the lower on the lower end of the table and not score those three, four goals super easily and, and, and cut through defenders. And then he's going to hear about it. You know, is, do you think I'm, I'm sure he can handle it, but do you think that's going to be an issue? Would that be an issue? For I him would a bit? think uh, absolutely not. This guy is, you know, he's, he's not like anybody else, you know, I, I I, my comparison would be with, perhaps with Thierry Henry. Uh, I was lucky uh, to be on French TV just when he was, you know, shining with Arsenal. <clears throat> so I get to to hang out uh, around the, the Arsenal team of that time and see close up how Thierry Henry dealt with being, you know, arguably the biggest star in English football over those years. You know, the, the greatest goal scorer in Arsenal's history and wonderful, you know, player. And he had that, you know... Um, quality that the Mbappe has in that he was born for that you know and Henri was at ease in front of the cameras with microphones he already I mean I, I interviewed him so many times after games and he, you know some people would come off the pitch and they, they can't really find their words or or they haven't even really digested the, the game and they perhaps need to see it again to to understand what happened Henri was never like that Henri was just like Mbappe walk off the pitch and, and, and tell you exactly what happened and why and what went wrong or what went right and how it went right and how it went wrong and what they need to do and what I need to... You know, brilliant. These guys, you know, they're on a different level. Henri was like that and, I, and I'm sure that Mbappe uh, is the same and Mbappe, I think, would thrive in, in an uh, atmosphere like that. <clears throat> I don't think there's any worry at all. I mean, I would be 100% confident that he would walk into that, that kind of arena and just take positives from it. And the more attention he gets the lesser a problem it is he, he really is so bright and and so well spoken and he's just you know he's become captain of the france team 
the first couple of press conferences he did as captain of the French soccer team, you know, it's one of the greatest teams right now in world football. It's just water off a duck's back. This guy, like I say, yeah, he's only 24, but he's so smart, you know, he makes it look so easy. He finds the right words. He knows uh, what he wants to say and how to go about it. Now, the kid, you know, bluffs me all the time. I, I would have no worries, you know. He doesn't need to be, you know, molly coddled or uh, you don't need to hold his hand. He'd, he would go to the Premier League tomorrow. Piece of cake. You know, he, seriously, I think he would be brilliant with any team. He'd be, he'd score a hatful of goals with any team in England. And I think he would be, he would enjoy the attention, I'm sure, you know, because he's so good at, at, at just soaking it all in, you know, and, and I think it would be a fun thing. He'd actually enjoy it all. Well, I mean, I, I think as a, in a many in many ways, as sort of football fans, as neutrals, you you kind of want to see him go and get tested at a, at, I won't say higher level because it's not with any disrespect necessarily to the French league, but certainly a no, I know a, what you mean. The standard of opponent that maybe tests him more week in week out. Um, so I can say that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you've been really generous with your time. So maybe if we do one final question each, I'm going to switch you away. Usually, try and end on some maybe a bit more fun questions. You, we've spoken hmm. about the range of sports that you've covered. Is there one event that you've not yet had the opportunity to cover that you really wish that you could uh, be there as a, a broadcaster or a journalist? Yes, I I was fortunate enough to cover the 2012 London Olympics. Uh, and that was another highlight for me as an Englishman as well, being there and seeing it work so well. The games were fantastic. And I, you know, I was in the stadium for the 100 metres final with Usain Bolt and I was out watching field hockey and handball and you name it, I saw it. It was wonderful and the cycling was fantastic. Um, so I, I kind of clocked off the, the Olympics thing. So the, the thing that springs to my mind, even though I know the Olympics are coming to Paris and I hope to have some kind of role, um, the thing that springs to mind is, is the golf, actually. And my, one of, it's not a regret because I couldn't do anything about it. That You know, in TV land these days, if your TV station has the rights to an event, then you get to work on the event. You know, you don't get to just pick and choose what you do, of course. And sadly for me, you know, being sports didn't have the rights to the Ryder Cup. And I loved the Ryder Cup, the golf competition. And when it was in Paris recently, you know, Europe against the US in Paris. Ah, oh, it was amazing. The atmosphere was fantastic, you know, and I had to to watch it from afar and not be able to cover it. And that was something which I really, I was like, oh, God, I'd love to be on air for this. I'd love to be broadcasting from, from that event because it was wonderful. And of course, you know, sorry, guys, but Europe won and so it made it even better. So that was something, you know, I mean, if I could do uh, some some Ryder Cup golf, yeah, that would uh, that would tick a lot of boxes for me. Yo, go ahead. Are you going to tell him that you went to the Ryder Cup and try and rub it in? No, a I was, on well, no, I'm sure you, I'm sure Darren was there, but yeah, no, I did. And, and I will say as someone who didn't grow up as a huge golf fan, you know, I played a bit of golf and stuff, but it wasn't yeah. something I was not ter- t- turning on the TV to watch golf. Yeah. I think the Ryder Cup stood out to me as, as one of the greatest sporting events I've attended. Right. It would be, I'm, the, I'm the same. Yeah. I agree. I mean, you know, I don't, play golf, you know, particularly, I mean, I'm really rubbish, so hardly ever play. And I don't, Apart from the majors, I don't watch golf on TV. But yeah, the Ryder Cup gets me every time. I, mean, I guess it's the it's the team thing, and you know, seeing those guys who week after week are on their own, you know, they're battling against everybody else. You know, it's a tough world out there. And the the, the, you know, the recent Netflix series was it Full Swing? I thought it was yeah. brilliant for that to see. You know, like wow, these guys. You know, it's such a harsh, harsh world out there at the top of golf. You know, um, to see them play as a team. 
you know, and really get into it and really enjoy it. And, you know, um, and want to want to be, especially, you know, like between the Americans and the Europeans, lots of them are really good friends on the circuit, you know. But then suddenly it's like, you know, it's us against them now, you know, it's you against me. And uh, yeah, I really, I really love that. I thrive on that, you know, on that kind of atmosphere. So, yeah, I get what you're saying. I really enjoy watching that as well. So I, I was going to try and pick your brain a little bit about uh, a topic mm -hmm. that we covered a lot last, almost probably now a year ago in the Super oh. League um, and the, the, the formation of it. But I, I, I will leave that for another day because I'm sure we can all just bash the Super League, you know, for, for hours. Um, but for me, I guess a, a fun one to end on for me would be you've covered a lot of World Cups in France for French media. How um, open are you about, you know, are, are you still supporting England in, in the broadcasting booth there and, and kind of rubbing it in with your fellow commentators? Or are you kind of just silently sitting there? I mean, probably I, I would assume silent because, you know, England haven't had as much success as France have. So maybe you had to have been <laughs> silent. But, you know, what's 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 your support level like now that you've been living yeah. there for so long and you've obviously you know, been a voice. Of yeah, French so that's football. a really good question because, and it does bring back to mind uh, lots of memories quickly because um, sure. I'm the English guy, you know? So when I'm on air, you know, nine times out of 10, that doesn't come into play because I'm talking about, you know, champions league football or I'm presenting, well, Wimbledon, for example, on the tennis front. So it's, it's not like a, a thing, you know? I mean, everyone knows who I am and where I come from. But it, of course, it is a thing when I'm talking about France against England, you know? At the last World Cup, that was the quarterfinal, of course. I was there in Qatar. I was in the stadium and I was presenting the game, you know? So, you know, I, as and there you do feel very lonely, you know? You are the only guy on the, of, you know, the whole of our team here, of course, you know? Who wants England to win? And as a you know a French broadcaster, I also knew that it wouldn't be good business for my company if England knocked France out. You know, we want France to go to the final because it's good for viewing figures, of course. So it was kind of yeah. I love those moments because yeah, I encourage my uh, my colleagues to to rib me about that. You know, to get stuck in. You know, and it means I can do the same. And and we have a lot of fun on air. It gives us a real edge. You know, because suddenly, you know, you really are defending something that you care about, you know. And sometimes people make the mistake, French people make the mistake of saying to me, well, you know, Darren, you know, yeah, you've been in France for 30 years now, you know, who are you going to support between France and England? I'm like, are you serious? Come on. You know? I mean, you know I'm the English guy. Of course I'm for England, you know. I mean, I said to French guys, you know, if you'd been living in London for 30 years, would you suddenly change your allegiance, you know? Would you suddenly like sing God Save the King instead of La Marseillaise? Of course not, you know? You're always gonna be for your for your home country. But of course at the same time, guys, you know, like I, I do it with uh, I, I play up to it, I lean into it, I, I I play the you know, the chauvinistic card as if, you know, as if it's gonna be the end of the world if England if, if England lose. Whereas in reality, of course, you know. You can't be a huge patriot and chauvinistic guy if you've been living in a different country more than half your life by choice, you know. Um, of course, I want England to win. But really, you know, I'm so used to England not winning. It doesn't really do much to me anymore these days. And as soon as England are out, you know, <laughs> yes, I'm for France after that, only after that. But then I'm for France. So what happened last time in the quarterfinal when England, you know, really might have knocked France out? You know, we did. We played a really good game. Um but at the end of it, you know, of course, you know, 
Of course, they were all taking the mickey out of me. You know, they were ribbing me ceaselessly. And of course, it was fun and I enjoyed it. You know, I, I find all this kind of thing. You know, this is a this is something that we have thanks to you know, on my station. You know, we also have an Argentine guy. Uh, and I think it's fun, you know? Yeah. Oh, he, he, oh, must, he must have had a fun few weeks. Best time of his <laughs> life, you know? And he's a former football player. He used to play for PSG back in the day, Omar De Fonseca. He wasn't a great football player, but he was a fantastic uh, pundit and, and a brilliant friend of, of ours here. So I think that's great, you know, and it brings colour and it brings, you know, excitement and fun uh, to, to the show. So that's not a problem. But I do remember <laughs> another funny story about England and, and the football team is uh, before the last Euro, which was in England, of course, and they they'd put it back a year because of COVID. But so it was Euro 20s and they played it in Euro 2020. They played it in 2021, didn't they? And again, my station was, was broadcasting every game. So we did a big promo thing just before the beginning of the, of the tournament. And I was one of the guys being interviewed with Arsene Wenger about, you know, who we thought were going to do well in the tournament. And Arsene, you know, of course, being uh, still living in London at the time, was asked about England. And, and to be honest, guys, you know, they, they basically we're doing this promo thing, you know, with lots of newspapers and magazines over here in France. And uh, and I found it had been a little bit low key up to now. So I was, I was trying to find a way to, you know, add a little bit of spice to the whole conversation. You know, I'm looking for a punchline here, you know, a headline, an angle. And Arsene Wenger starts saying, well, you know, I do think that the England team is looking very good. You know, I give them a very good chance of doing well at the Euros. And I, and I so I butted in. I thought, here's my chance, you know. So I, I cut him off, you know. I said, so Arsene, I'm sorry. I said, listen, I know you've been in England a long time, but Arsene, I don't know what you've been, what you've been putting in your old grey over there these in recent days. Let's, let me just remind you that England, you know, hasn't won a, a soccer tournament since 1966, Arsene. Every time we go in there saying we're going to do well, every time we come home with our you know, tail between our legs, you know, crying about we'll do better next time. So I said, I'll tell you what, I said, you may think that England are going to do well. I am so confident that we will not win it, that, that if ever, uh, I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. If England win the European Championships, I will have my hair shaved off on the set straight after the final, you know. And of course, that guy, it was funny. We laughed uh, and, and, and they picked it up and ran with that a little bit over here. You know, Darren Chulet's going to do this if England win. Imagine a few weeks later, England are in the final. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to lose my hair. <laughs> <laughs> were, were they trimmers? With a full head of hair, these things matter, you know. And all my were colleagues, they trimmers there in case, you, in case England won? I'm like, yes, exactly, exactly. The, the, the hairdresser here had got the trimmers out and they worked out, you know, because, of course, England were winning in that game and they had all, they'd worked it all out, the whole choreography. At the end of the game, they were going to take it in turns with the trimmer. Everybody was going to, like, shave off a little bit, then hand it down the line. There's going to be, like, a whole line of people queuing up to shave my hair off. I mean, with hindsight, it would have been hilarious. <laughs> but, of course, England didn't bloody win. I... I don't believe you. I'm sure your heart rate didn't even rise. You you knew who you were supporting at the end of the day. <laughs> weren't weren't even breaking a sweat. <laughs> Come on, Italy. <laughs> oh dear. Well, I guess on on that note, uh, you know, it's been great talking to you about your career and football. And so, thank you so much for being you know really generous with your time. And and maybe we can have yeah, you back you on so again much. in the future with obviously. A, Champions League final or a European, you know, the Euros next summer and stuff coming up. There'll be, yeah, yeah. Euros absolutely. Have you on again? Well, thank you, Frank. Thank you, Edward. It was fun talking to you guys. Great. Great. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks so much. Have a good one.